This is Linux Unplugged, episode 40 for May 13th, 2014. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that just hit its distinguished 40s. My name is Chris. My name is Matt. Hey there, Matt. 40 weeks, buddy, right in a row, too. Man. I mean, it's no Coda Radio 100 or TechSnap 160, whatever. But it's, I don't know, I'm a little proud of it. You know, because this is just a little idea we have. We're like, hey, we got too much show every week. Let's do another show. Right. Here we are 40 weeks later. I think it's turned out pretty good. Not to pat ourselves on our own back or anything like that. No. But I, it's going to be a fun show today, too. We're introducing a new segment in this week's show. I'll tell you about that in just a second. Of course, we've got our feedback like we always do. And two developers from the LXQT project have joined us to discuss our first look that we had over the weekend at LXQT. Just at their first major beta. So we're going to chat with them in a little bit. Then we'll get to that new segment. So that new segment I mentioned, we're going to call it the Mumble Roundtable. And right now, I've submitted a link to our chat room, and they are voting on what should be the roundtable's topic. I've proposed two topics. I don't pick the topic. The live stream picks the topic. And right now, the two topics we have proposed to them is the orange box that uh, Canonical announced today. It is an Ubuntu cluster in a box. It's a pretty cool concept, and it's, like, made up of, like... 10 NUCs in a box, <laughs> 10 Intel <laughs> NUCs in a box, and it's a pretty neat deal. And then also the second topic that is being voted on. So there's two choices. Choice number two, antivirus pioneer Alan Solomon thinks that antivirus is dead, and he says he switched to Linux instead. So whichever one is the is the winning topic towards the end of the show will be our open roundtable discussion that uh, we'll get to. So I, I'm looking forward to that to kind of uh, you know give our virtual lug a chance to stretch out a little bit and uh, and uh, pontificate on a good topic. But, Matt, yes. before we get to that, we should probably start with the feedback because there was something that, man. Oh, boy. Jupiter <laughs> Broadcasting was off the air basically yesterday for Chrome users. Mon- yeah, like, what was up with that? Case that of crazy. the Mondays. So mm. Mark writes in and he says, uh, hey, I can get no malware warning. I'm running Ubuntu 14.04 with XFCE and Chromium. I like that he's giving us the XFCE, like, just so you know. <laughs> I'm getting a malware error in Chromium, <laughs> but I'm running on it. Okay. I uh, tried to download the HD video version of Last 3.11, and I got a malware warning from Chromium. Probably a bug, but I thought I should let you know about it. Love the show. Now, we got a lot of emails like this, but Mark had a good, concise email. And Mark also was kind enough to include a screenshot. So if uh, you didn't get to enjoy this air that was happening to us yesterday, there it is. It says, the website ahead contains malware. Oh, boy. And Chromium has blocked access. Now, if you read carefully, it actually says Chromium has blocked access to www.podtrack.com. Um, no, it actually wasn't a problem with the Jupyter Broadcasting website. It was a problem with the download stat tracking service we use. PodTrack's kind of like the the gold standard in legitimate podcast podcast statistic download counts. As, as you know, as good of a service there is, it's pretty much PodTrack. Now the problem was their whole domain got blacklisted by the Google anti malware whatever it is, and so every podcaster that uses PodTrack have their downloads unavailable to Chromium users and then and Chrome users and then eventually Firefox and eventually Safari and other browsers later in the day. 
all got their downloads blocked. I mean, this is not only taking out Jupiter Broadcasting, but it took out Twit, it took out NPR, the Nerdist, uh, the Discovery Networks, all of those guys that use PodTrack were nailed by this. Now, uh, our awesome web developer, Aaron, was able to, uh, about midway in the day, I, I said, all right, I call Uncle. Aaron, can you please go in there and just pull all the PodTrack links from our site? Because this also affected the HTML5 video player. So even just trying to stream video oh, from our man. website, the only thing that worked was the live stream. And uh, Lynn this morning, uh, earlier early this morning, PodTrack sends an email. He says, hi, Chris. Dear Chris, yesterday we discovered an issue with the PodTrack domain that impacts some non-iTunes podcast users. Yeah, like everyone <laughs> using Chrome. <laughs> it's like, come on, really? Guys? Yeah. yeah. You know, for those idiots that don't use iTunes, the Chrome browser blocked PodTrack.com domain reporting it as malware. Followed later by Firefox and Safari as they use the same malware list as Google. At the same time, Chrome's diagnostic page said there's no reports of malware for this domain in the last 90 days. And for more than eight years, we have not seen a browser return the domain as malware. They scanned the servers ourselves, and we didn't find any malware. We requested a review from Google in sometime between 1 a.m. and 7 a.m. Eastern today, so that's this morning. Chrome and other browsers corrected their listing of PodTrack.com domain, and the services are working in all browsers again. Um, so we, you know, essentially just didn't have... So for the first half of the day, we didn't have downloads. For the second half of the day and, and in, into today, we didn't have any tracking. So not a great day for uh, not a great not a great day for us, and not a great day for podcast listeners either. And in a way, too, doesn't it show you how dangerous it can be to consolidate power like that on the web? Because even though that anti malware tool does a lot of good and it saves a lot of Windows users' butts, uh, it also can go very badly. And in this case, it essentially took an entire industry, the Google malware system, took an entire industry off the air. Now, did PodTrack have a legitimate malware? They claim not, but maybe they did. I mean, they do use IIS after all, so it seems entirely conceivable (laughs) they did have something. But uh, the end result for me was like, oh, well, sorry, you know, all of our listeners and downloaders are getting this big old scary air that makes it look like the Jupyter Broadcasting website has malware on it. So it's not a good experience all around. Um, and I, I hope that Google, this isn't the first time we've seen something like this happen. I think this is maybe the largest scale outage that the Google anti-malware service has, has uh, caused. And it's, uh, it's not a great experience. So I apologize to you guys out there who are trying to download the Linux Action Show or the Faux Show on Monday or Coda Radio and, and got that air. Monday's a big day for us, so I know it affected a lot of folks out there. I apologize about that. But it should all be resolved now. And, you know, the RSS feeds for the most part, weren't impacted as far as I know. So if you want, if you ever want to just uh, bypass it, just subscribe in your favorite RSS client, maybe it's Potter or Miro or whatever it is, and that might have solved the problem. All right, Matt, next email comes in from Gargan, I think. Jargon? Gargan, okay. Well, I'm not, I, I apologize, I'm not getting that one right. He has a little follow-up on our fragmentation time bomb discussion. He says he feels the fragmentation isn't really an issue. Consider QT and GTK, so what? You have them both on Windows and even OS X. Does using Qt on iOS fragment iOS? Not one bit. It's still iOS, a well-defined target for developers with a semi-stable API. Look at the toolkits that Windows has. Microsoft Foundation Classes, the Windows Template Library, SmartWin++, the Object Windows Library, Windows Forms, Windows Presentation Foundation, Qt, GTK+, Swing, and WX Widgets, all on Windows. The problem is a fragmented core. Examples would be the multitude of glibc, unstable kernel driver API, systemd, sysv, upstart, glib, mesa, mesa, Cairo, gstreamer, pulse audio, and uh, versions that compromise, or all versions that compromise the bedrock of the OS. So I was arguing yesterday that 
yeah, the core is stable. He's saying, no, it's not. It doesn't matter what's happening up in user land. Let them use whatever toolkits they want. What really matters is we have stable ABIs and APIs to target. Like, you know, and that's something we've heard from from driver developers for years, too. Uh, I, I, do you think maybe I was a little off the mark? Is well, Maybe I was misrepresenting how fragmented the Linux core is? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, you know, I definitely see what they're saying, and I, and I definitely agree with it to an extent. But I also think that because we're so freewheeling that we don't really have a dominant anything. Uh, in the ecosystem, and I think that's probably kind of where a lot of people find frustration, including yourself. I think that's kind of the frustration mm. we have. Um, you know, so I half agree with him, but at the same time, I also think that we do need to kind of, uh, in user land, kind of figure out what we're doing, at least with the dominant distributions, and then everybody else can just do whatever they want. Um, right. That being said, our biggest problem is we're, we have half the camp that that adamantly loves the fact that we have no dominant anything, and then we have yeah. the other half the camp that hates it. And as long as we have that, I don't ever say this getting resolved. I, I think, think it's, it's a wasted effort. It's a wasted effort, Matt, yeah, until it gets so. resolved. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's kind of like evolution in a sense. Like, eventually, dominant sure. dominant uh, strains and and, uh, and implementations stand out, in a way. And uh, eventually, it just it's a lot messier. It takes a lot longer. I think it eventually gets worked out, and I think things like System D, and I think the... The kernel API thing is a valid complaint, but I don't think it's as valid as it used to be. Um, so right. I think it's over time. It is actually just kind of improving upon itself. Nico writes in. He says, uh, thanks for the great show. I really like it. But, and there's always a but, Matt. Always the but. I was extremely disappointed with your discussion on Mangia in episode 39. I almost never write any kind of comments to anybody, but this just got me so sad. Mm-hmm. That I just have to write this one. Now, he specifically laid out what he didn't like. I wouldn't went ahead and cut it because these emails that we're getting these days are just way too long. So sure. I'm, I'm editing a little bit. So I just I wanted to kind of just touch on some of his core points. He says, first of all, what I was the most disappointed with was that you guys obviously did no research on the subject yourself. You just let the mumble room tell you what they think about Mangia. And maybe it's okay, but by doing so, you sure made it sound a whole lot more difficult and strange than it really is. And I must say... I don't. I do not even understand half of what the complaints were. So, long story short, do your own research. I think he's but challenging didn't us. Give it any specifics? I mean, it's basically he just did exactly what he said. The mumble. Well, I kind of cut some of it to make it briefer. Okay. I mean, he the one thing like he took the most issue with was our discussion around packages and 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 like some of the, how some of the weird packages in the repos and stuff like that. And I I just it's kinda RPM f- based into discussion. I mean, it's it, um, <laughs> he loses right there. I mean, as far as I'm that's not even a debate. Now, I mean, that's not to say it's not a nice distribution from other aspects of it, but uh, that's that's through years and years of banging my face into RPM distros. I, that's that's well researched yeah so. i i mean i do see your <laughs> point there i mean i i don't know man i mean maybe we should put it on the schedule down the road in a few weeks maybe we should throw magia on our machines and sure. just kind of you know see what we maybe maybe you know like because i was pretty sure when we took the arch challenge i was going to be like mr nose up and they were like this is stupid yeah I know, and I'm speaking exclusively of packaging, where with Arch, I had no experience with the packaging. Yeah, um, that's true. Unless, I mean, we do know. Yeah. fairy magic dust to make RPM suck right. less, and yeah. they maybe they do. I don't know. Well, there is URPMI in there. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. so I mean, I think yeah. it's worth a try, sure. Yeah, I see what you're saying, though. Like, Arch is a fully different beast, but you're, you've are you been down the RPM alley before. Yeah, you, you know, know what's at the end of that alley. It's an awesome-looking distro. I mean, I'm not, not negating that at all. I think they did a lot of things right, but at the end of the day... For me, it's more than appearance. Packages, packages, packages. I, I could have the ugliest desktop in the world, but if I got the packages, I need them happy. You know, that's just me. 
Yeah, I. You know what? You make a lot of <laughs> sense. And uh, so let's give it some thought. Maybe uh, you and I can uh, do a little collab after Sunday on yeah. Sunday's last, and figure out if there's a spot where we can slip in a Magia review. And and you know, but I kind of I kind of see your point too. Like we have like at a certain time, you've been around the block enough that you you kind of learn. Like you know, sometimes there's just no change in a distro. I don't know. We'll see. I don't mean I want I don't want to make it so heavy. So you and I will talk on Sunday. Maybe we'll decide to schedule it in the last. And we'll do it. I have a feeling yeah. we're going to do it, but we'll talk about it. Totally. All right. Uh, Widar writes in. He says, hey there, Chris and Matt. Love the show. I'm writing in for an idea of how-to Linux, for how-to Linux. Now, we get a lot of these, but I just thought I'd take this opportunity to kind of update everybody on where we're at with how-to Linux. Oh. He says, I'm writing in on an idea for the show. My idea is using a DigitalOcean droplet and install a light desktop on it using X2Go, an XRDP server on a thin client, to connect to the droplet over the Internet you could have local sound, print and drive forwarding. I realize it's not a simple how-to, but I'd love to see your approach to the task. Cheers. Wittar. An interesting idea, turning a DigitalOcean droplet into essentially a remote cloud desktop server. So I'm going to give you guys an update on where we're at with how-to Linux. Uh, but first, why don't I give a thanks to our first sponsor, and that is DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is simple cloud hosting. And I got to tell you guys, we got a great brand new promo code for the month of May. Guess what it is? Unplugged May. Unplugged nice. May will get you a $10 credit so you can try out DigitalOcean for two months for free if you get the $5 rig. Don't, you don't know what DigitalOcean is? DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. Now, you're like, oh, sure. Sure, Chris. Sure. I got a tweet this week. I think our new record is 37 seconds. 37 seconds. Ooh. Now, most DigitalOcean users can spin up a cloud server in about 55 seconds or so. Not our audience. Our audience is now 37 seconds. But here's the best part. Pricing plans start at only $5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer for $5. That's a f you know exactly how much you're going to pay. It's a fixed cost. It's not going to scale up for CPU usage. You know, you're not going to get you're not going to get charged one price for 200 gigabytes of transfer and a different price for 900 gigabytes of transfer. You get a terabyte. It's included with that. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, and Amsterdam. Their interface is simple. Their control panel is super intuitive, and power users can replicate this control panel on a larger scale with their straightforward API. I have heard so many awesome stories of what our audience is using DigitalOcean for. So go over there, use the promo code for the month of May, Unplugged May. One word, Unplugged May, will get you that $10 credit. You can try out a DigitalOcean droplet for two months, even if you only use it for two months to just increase your own skill set. Work on something that you've been wanting to do. Scratch that itch. Try out that thing. They've got a great image backup system. So if you screw something up, just take a snapshot first. Revert right back. You get tier one bandwidth. It's all sitting on top of SSD drives with, I got to tell you, some of the best data center locations in the world. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code UNPLUGGEDMAY to get that $10 credit. Go check them out and see what you can do. A really big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring Linux Unplugged. I... Every month, I find something new to do with my droplet, and uh, in this Sunday's last, I think we're going to be scratching an itch for you guys, or at least we're going to make something itch, and you're going to want to scratch it. So keep DigitalOcean in mind when we start talking about some server stuff on Sunday. DigitalOcean.com, and use the promo code UNPLUGGEDMAY, and a really big thank you to those guys. Really appreciate them sponsoring yeah. the Linux Unplugged show, and there's so many cool things you can do with it, and you know what? It's all built 
on top of Linux. So that's pretty cool too, right? So now you're, you're supporting a company that also runs on top of uh, Linux using KVM and all kinds of stuff. They really get their users. I think that's the big takeaway. It's just awesome. Now, uh, we have joining us two developers from the LXQT project. Now, I know them by their mumble names, but uh, maybe we'll get to know their actual mm. names. Uh, starting first is uh, Jay Lanch. Am I saying that right? That's Jerome Leclanche. Jay Leclanche. Jerome, welcome to Linux Unplugged. And we also have PC Man joining us. And PC Man, what's your first name? PC Man? My name is, is in Chinese. Uh, my name is Hongren Yu. So, so I use this ID for short. And you're talking to us from tu- uh, Taiwan, right? Yes, I'm from Taiwan. And uh, Jerome is in uh, uh, Cambridge, I believe. So we, we got a 10 o'clock and a 5 a.m. are here with us. So I really appreciate you guys joining us. We're going to keep it brief since it is uh, so after hours and the connection's a little shaky. But the one thing that you know really struck me is uh, LXQT, as we looked at it on Sunday on the Linux Action Show, kind of looks like it's almost, for a lot of users, Matt said he might be one of them, mm-hmm. ready to use today. How far along do you guys see yourself? I don't know who's maybe the best person to ask. Uh, 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 PC Man, what, do, what is what is your role at the LXQT project? Uh, I, I'm, only, uh, I'm responsible for, for the file manager and, oh, okay. and oh, some okay. other parts. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Jay Lanch, what is your uh, role at the LXQT project? I do mostly system administration and UX, but PC Man is underselling himself. He's he's really the guy who built the original LXD Qt project before we merged with uh, Razor Qt. Well, big respect because I think you know uh, the, the work is is remarkable already. So, PC Man, I'll start with you. Then, how far along do you consider it right now? Is this uh, uh, sort of halfway baked? Is this um, Five percent baked? Is it almost done? Where do you see it at right now, in your opinion? Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not completely finished now. Uh, we, we, we still need some more translations and artwork, and there are some remain bu- remaining bugs. But actually, it, it's it's already working and uses daily. How are you guys seeing response from uh, a user base? Are you seeing people circle around and get excited? We've uh, we, we've had a really huge huge uptake from uh, our recent release. Uh, you got to understand that before before it was LXQt, it was RazorQt, and right. RazorQt already had its own kind of community. LXQt really is the continuation of that. It was just kind of on the back burner for a while. So are you guys, being honest with me, are you on a QT holy war, or is this one of these things that you, you were looking at it from a practical standpoint, you said, I like the direction QT is going in, I think we could build a compelling desktop around it. How did, how did this is a major, going from you know a GTK-based desktop, switching over to QT, merging two popular projects, um, is that, is there something, is there a larger motivation there, PC Man? Uh, yes. Uh, actually, we, we are, one of the reason is that the the GTK three. Uh, when, when we try to my, uh, when we try to port LXD to GTK three, uh, we encounter many problems, and uh, some APIs are changed, and some some even with different behavior, and it, it kind of and 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 the theme uh, and the themes are changed too. So so actually, it's not very backward compatible. And right right yeah. So was the sense 
that uh, it was moving away from being a toolkit for all and maybe a toolkit specific for the GNOME desktop. And since you weren't necessarily interested in creating the GNOME desktop, you needed to move something that gave you more flexibility and a quote-unquote freedom? Am I, am I grokking? Oh, pretty much correct. We are... This is pretty much what we've seen from uh, a lot of GTK developers who feel that GTK is becoming way too GNOME centric, and this is this was the experience of the LXD desktop. But on on the Razor side of things, we we just like Qt. We we've always been Qt developers, and we want to continue being Qt developers. So it was kind of just two projects with the same goals. Right. And uh, you guys seem to be positioning the desktop in a pretty good spot. Uh, there's a lot of people who are seeing these trends that are interested in Qt development. Uh, and I think that's a big one. I think people that are looking to switch to Linux that are interested in Qt development, but they're also interested in having a more minimal desktop experience. And uh, when you guys decided to go forward with the merger... Uh, was it with this sort of 50,000-foot view of, well, this is the way the landscape is going, and so we should make this merger? Or was it, this is what I want to do, and now, just by happenstance, you guys seem to be in this really great position for the desktop? Um, I'll, I'll take this one. Basically, when we decided to merge, the uh, LXD Qt project was just getting started, and it was based on a lot of Razor Qt parts. And on the side of Razor Qt, we we had a lot of problem developer-wise. Uh, we had about four or five active developers, and it kept cycling between uh, between people leaving the project and people joining the project. So we never really had a solid team. So the merger was really from a need of having more activity, and was really successful in that uh, in that sense. So about how many people are working on the LXQT project at this point? Uh, I would say about a dozen. But as I said, we've had a lot of uh, uptake recently. So Any talks of like a commercial sponsor who might provide funding for some full-time development? You guys been approached? PCMan? No approach? No? Uh, we've, we've not really had... Uh, I mean, some people contacted us not directly for sponsoring, but we're, we're definitely open to it. And yeah. uh, a couple of our community members want want to fund the the project as well. Great. I mean, you know, the other the other really great use I could see for LXQT are enterprise desktops where they want a cute environment. And uh, they don't necessarily need GNOME 3 or full KDE. These are just business class machines. They, you know, perhaps a more traditional interface is actually um, a performance or, I guess, a productivity improvement. It's a, it's a good thing for productivity to be a little more classical. So, I, to me, like, I, I could seriously see commercial in entities getting interested in wanting to encourage LXQT's development because, like... Imagine a CentOS-based distribution around the LXQT desktop. It's like, this is your iron, solid, bullet 
proof desktop that looks and works a lot like your old XP machine did. But this is, you know, now you guys are a QT development shop. This is a made up scenario. But here's your you're a QT development shop. Here's a great desktop that works for you. Uh, so I think it's and, and then, of course, it's for enthusiast users who want to eke the most performance for games and things like that but still want to feel like they're not totally stuck in the 90s. I think it's a very interesting project, guys. So uh, was there anything you wanted to mention or touch on from our review that we did on Sunday or any, any follow-up before I let you guys go? Uh, I wanted to say uh, I really liked the review. I, I watched it yesterday. Uh, I really liked the the review you did. The KDE system settings uh you, you were talking about system settings yeah uh, having like three or four different system settings and you actually reviewed the kde system settings not the actual execute one right it's hard to yeah. tell when you do it on an ubuntu installation yeah yeah, yeah. so <laughs> uh yeah but at the same time i also felt like lxqt was sort of like hey whatever you want to use to configure like it, i i didn't feel like i was being forced to use like a specific set of configuration tools too is that intentional or is that just where things are at right now pc man uh Pardon? Uh, what, what, what do you mean? Well, like, for example, it seemed to me like, and I don't know if this was just the PPA archive that I was pulling it from, but, like, if I wanted to use the KDE settings to configure something, it seemed to work. It seemed to allow it for what I was doing, at least. And I was just curious if, I know there's a modular aspect to LXQT. Is that the modular you mean? Is I can use this as my default file manager. I use this as my default configuration program for my whatever is that or, or or will there be a very specific set of lxqt configuration tools that as the desktop matures those are the ones you use regardless okay uh it's modular but it's not uh it's not that modular as you think because uh, uh part of this is because the design of Qt. uh when you run run some kde programs you will notice that it does not uh, they do not apply the setting from your Qt config because uh, they have their own module uh, and mm. doing this. Okay. Uh, KDE guys have their own uh, platform plugin to improve integration with KDE. So, uh, so their programs sometimes uh, do not load the Qt, uh, the, the do not load the settings from Qt config. So you will have inconsistent uh, settings uh, among the Qt programs sometimes, and okay. it's hard to solve. Yeah, and and we 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 suffer from a similar problem because uh, independent Qt pro programs sometimes load different settings than yours. So 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 we we implemented a Qt plugin to solve this. So there there are still some limitation and and some settings uh, only apply to our desktop session. So not all of the tool can be used outside LSQt, but we, we will make uh, do our best to make it. All right, that makes sense. That I, I understand how that yeah. could happen. Yeah, it seems like that, and that's uh, you know probably something in a few years it'll get worked out just on the QT side. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Uh, I really appreciate. It. I know the times are a little crazy where you guys are at. Uh, and all over the world too at that, especially PC man. I really appreciate it, and keep up the awesome work on the uh, Pac-Man file manager or the yeah right yeah PC file man. Anyways, that is a great file manager, and I'm loving the Qt implementation. So great work on that, uh, Matt. I've got uh, I got a little question I want to toss towards the audience. It's going to help inform this Sunday's Linux Action Show. In fact, it's 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 a bit of a survey. It's, uh, it's oh okay yeah it's something it's something. Um, Something I want to I want to talk about. We've talked before on the Linux Action Show about building like the ultimate Linux home server, 
And in the mm-hmm. past, our builds have always been Ubuntu-based, uh, uh, 1204 and 1210, uh, somewhere in there. And so now that we're over at JB1, we've been uh, sort of building out a new server infrastructure. We've got uh, a free NAS, NAS here. It's a free NAS mini from IX Systems. Then we have in front of that a Proxmox machine that's running multiple different instances, and I'm going to go into more detail on the, on the big show. Uh, of Linux in front of that of that FreeNAS VM, and we're loading up different services on there. And I, I kind of want to uh, ask the audience, like, what makes your perfect Linux server? Like, what, like, if you're going to load on your house or something like that. So I just put the uh, link to the survey in the chat room if people want to fill that out. And while they're doing that, while they're answering the questions, it's it's a pretty quick survey. While they're answering those questions, uh, I want to tell you about our second sponsor this week, and that is. Ting. What is Ting? Ting is mobile. It makes sense. It's my mobile service provider and Matt's mobile service provider. And you know what we love about Ting? You only pay for what you use. I know. It it sounds insane. It sounds impossible. There's no way you only pay for what you use. But that's what's great about Ting. It's $6 a month for every line you have. And then just, you know, any applicable taxes and your usage on top of that. I know. You're like, Chris, that's too good of a deal. And I'd be like, well, listener, how come you don't trust me by this point? But if you don't believe me, maybe you'd believe Kyra. Ting keeps rates simple. We don't make you pick a plan. Instead, you just use your phone as you normally would. How much you use determines how much you pay each month. You can have as many devices as you want on one account. That's good, because when you use more, you pay less per minute, message, or megabyte of data. Your usage, plus $6 per active device on your account, plus taxes, is your monthly bill. Simple. That's what we mean when we say... Mobile. That makes sense. One of the great things about Ting, too, is the Ting dashboard. As I've been a customer now for well over a year, I really, really appreciate this. And the other thing that's really great about Ting is they're uh, they're great at just blogging about what they're working on, what they're thinking about the industry and as a whole. And as somebody who follows this stuff, I like to be an informed consumer. I think this is one of also my favorite features. They uh, had an interview with one of their sysadmins on their blog about how Ting uses data to make sure that when they make a rate change, everybody is getting a, a good return on that change. I think it's a really interesting and fascinating way that they do this. So you can watch that over on their blog. They're also helping out with... Uh, budget tips. You know, this is something they think about a lot. And so they've got a new guy in who's doing blogs on finance tips and things like that in general. Of course, it includes saving money on uh, your Ting account. So go over to linux.ting.com. That lets them know you heard about it right here on the Linux Unplugged show. Also get you $25 off. So if you want to grab a Ting phone, they'll take $25 off your first phone. If you don't have, if you already have a phone, if if you're just going to switch over and you're going to port your phone, you're going to BYOD, they'll take $25 off your first month or give you $25 credit. That paid for more than my first month. And Ting has a whole range of devices. They have the Sanyo 3810 Red starting at $52. And you own this phone outright and then you're only paying for your usage on top of that you can get a you can get a feature phone one of the gr- best feature phones out there these sanyos are amazing with these really cool front displays with where the clock shows through for 52 bucks and it's yours you own it it's not subsidized there's no contract and there's no early termination fee they got a whole range of really great devices so go over to linux.ting.com also try out that savings calculator you know one of the things i realized is i for your uh, for about a year, I was saying, oh, yeah, my cell phone bill was about $125. And I'm just like, actually, you know, your cell phone bill was $140 a month. And when I plugged in my old cell phone bill to this savings calculator, it came out to $2,200 over two years that I'm saving. Well, that's a new computer every two years right there just by switching to Ting. I could buy myself a fully loaded Ultra Pro every two years by switching to Ting. And that 
was a massive statement because I realized, you know, I kind of was willing to make some sacrifices. I was willing to kind of get into a bad deal because I was honestly a little distracted by the shiny nature of smartphones and how cool <laughs> they were. And then I got a couple years into it and I said, wait, what am I, $140 a month? What am I doing? Like, I didn't even realize that's what I was spending. It, like, it didn't really click with me. I didn't realize it was that much money. And now looking back at it, what was I wasting my money on? I didn't get my value out of that. Linux.ting.com. Go get the value out of your mobile service plan. And a really big thank you to Ting for sponsoring Linux Unplugged. And by the way, no, co- no hold customer service. How awesome is that? You don't have to. If you call them between 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern time, you don't have to hold. And you know what? I really appreciate that. I really do. All right, Matt, I want to talk about the perfect home server. So here's what I've asked the audience, and hopefully they're filling these out right now. So you're building a brand new Linux home server. You're using everything you've learned or heard about over the recent years. You're starting from scratch. What would you start with? So, oh, well, well, goodbye, Matt. What would you start with is what I asked the audience. And so I I put out the call. They're They're doing the survey right now. Hello, are you back? I am back. I have no idea what happened. I think, uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe the gremlins infected Skype. I don't know what Apparently. happened. Yeah. So, well, uh, love Skype. I've asked the audience to go out and uh, fill out that survey right now. This will help inform uh, the Linux Action Show on Sunday. I'll incorporate some of their feedback. See what we get. I'm kind of curious what people... I Also, I left a spot in there uh, to just kind of describe your dream setup and and all those kinds of things. So go out there, fill out that form. It's the perfect home server. And I'd be really curious to see what you guys would do and see if it lines up with, oh, we're already getting some results in right now. And by the way, you can see, oh, nice. the, you can see the results. The, I, I, I said in the forum to allow people to see the results. So oh, Open Media Vault looks like I'm getting an Open Media Vault. Sab NZB, Plex, Subsonic. Oh, yeah, Subsonic's a good one. I should have put that in the checkbox. Uh, BitTorrent Sync, File and Network Services, Couch Potato. So we're we're getting uh, we're getting a lot, and also I asked folks if they would just avoid building a LAN server and maybe just do like a VPS, like a DigitalOcean droplet. But uh, we'll see, we'll see where folks go on this. I'm kind of curious because what we've got what we've got set up here now at JB1 is uh, a Proxmox rig sitting on an i7 box with some internal storage and then some NFS storage, and uh, it's pretty neat because we set up an Arch server. Yes. An Arch server. I'm going to talk about more of that on Sunday while we're doing that. We set up an Arch server, and then we're, we, you know, to save ourselves time down the road, made a template of it, and now we can just deploy these Arch boxes. And so I've got one Arch machine that's limited to two cores, and that way, like, if it's doing things like BitTorrent Sync or SAB NZB Usenet downloads, it can't go too crazy. And then we've got an encoder box on there that's for Rekai to bang on for doing, like, a show encodings. And I just, like, I said just have at it. Do whatever you want. You get eight cores. You can use up as much. When Rikai wants to take over the rig, like he just logs into this one virtual machine that I set up for him, and he gets full control of all of the resources. And it's this cool way so to, to kind of provision stuff from one machine that you know isn't necessarily busy all the time. So why not? And what's really kind of – I did some testing – on the uh, machine with only two cores assigned to it and, and limited memory, we did an encode of uh, this week's faux show, and we were getting about uh, 22 frames per second. When we switched to the encoding machine, 
and with the eight cores available and more RAM, it went up to 122 frames. We gained 100 frames per second improvement on the encoding speed. So now wow. we got an Archbox. We're doing, and this isn't even like optimized FFmpeg scripts yet. This is just the basic boxes. But now we're going to start doing multi-machine encoding using this Proxmox VM. And I thought, no way are you going to encode inside a VM. That's crazy. <laughs> you can't do that. Can't be done. Can't no, be done. but it's actually, it's, it's working okay. It could be a little faster, but... Uh, Beggars can't be choosers, Matt. We, we you know, you only, yeah, you only get, get so many. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I got a new segment I want to introduce here in just a second. But before we do that, I want to just mention we just got a few days left on the Coda Radio 100 hoodie and T-shirt. Teespring.com/slash/cr100. We've sold 154. There are there is six days, four hours, 14 minutes, and 23 seconds remaining until this shirt is no longer available. Uh, the hoodie, if you're in a cold area, uh, might be the way to go. It is hot. It is over 80 degrees at JB1 right now, 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, so I'm looking at these red and orange Dakota Radio hoodies. Ange tells me the one that's selling the best is uh, this uh, kind of dark gray is uh, doing really well. So go to teespring.com slash CR100. Grab the limited Coda Radio 100 shirt, only available for a few more days, just to celebrate Coda Radio and hitting 100 episodes in a row, too. Maybe one day we'll have a Linux Unplugged t-shirt up there, Matt. Nice. I'd love that. You know? I can only dream. So uh, go get it while you can at teespring.com slash CR100. Not, we're not making a bunch of money. This isn't a fundraiser shirt. We just did a limit of 100, and uh, we just wanted something for the fans to be able to grab it. And I wanted some new shirts because it's getting hot out there. So this isn't like a, like any big money raiser, but it's got, it's still a fun way to, to kind of celebrate. You yeah. know what I mean? All right, Matt. Well, uh, it's time. It's time for us to own up. We gotta. We gotta look at the results. Hazel Bishop's new longer-lasting lipstick, the only lipstick I found that stays on beautifully all around the clock. Now that wasn't what I was talking about at all. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, I, I have been considering changing my lipstick. <laughs> all around the clock, Matt. All around the clock. No, actually, what it's really time for is our. All hands on board roundtable. We asked the live stream before we started, which topic would you like our roundtable to discuss? The uh, antivirus pioneer, Alan Solomon, who thinks antivirus is dead, and now he switched to Linux? Or the orange box, a $12,000 Ubuntu cluster. Now, Matt, wow. what can you say about our audience when I do a poll? What, 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 what usually ends up happening, Matt? What, what do you usually get when we ask our audience, what do you guys think about something? You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna probably roll the hardware. I could be wrong. Yeah, I think we should because this is a fifty fifty split right here. Yeah, we got it. We got it. Right, our our first one falls on its face, and I, I said we would go with whichever one pulled ahead. Two hundred and twenty votes. You know what? I I'm gonna put that in the chat room. I'm gonna put it to a vote right now. We can have one person tip the scale. Uh, if you go to right now live stream, go to strawpoll.me slash one six eight seven three nine five. Go over there and tip it one way, and then that'll be our topic. They're both really interesting. However, I personally think the Ubuntu one is slightly more interesting. <laughs> but that's just me. All right, here we go. <laughs> the poll has been tipped to the Ubuntu Orange Box, 113 votes out of 223 votes. Ubuntu Orange Box got 51% of the votes, and uh, the antivirus guy got 49% of the votes. All right, Mumble Room. So uh, why don't we let Popey go first? Popey, can you tell us what the orange box is and why it looks so damn cool? <laughs> uh, so it's a, a box that was designed by Canonical and built by a company called Tranquil PC in the UK. It's got a bunch of Intel nooks inside, which are i5, 
computers that are passively cooled. It's got a gigabyte switch, and the idea is that you could use it as uh, basically a cloud in a box. You could carry it around. It goes in a flight case, and uh, you could uh, cart it to a location and build a cloud locally, a private cloud. No NSA snooping for you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you're you're off and running with one box, one bright orange box. So it has what, like 10 NUCs stuffed inside this orange box? And then it has a gigabit switch integrated in this box and a USB hub, right? Yeah, it's it's impressive, actually. We saw it in the office a couple of months ago, or I saw it in the office, and a bunch of us uh, were kind of peering in uh, because they had the lid off, and uh, it was quite... (laughs) impressively built the guys at tranquil pc have done a really nice job building this thing and and i know that at the time when they built it i think it was a, a one-off there well more than one-off because i saw two of them in the office but, well <laughs> so here's the yeah. specs okay so it's 10 intel next specifically the ivy bridge d53427 rke model rolls off the tongue with an i5 3427u <laughs> cpu that's got an HD 4000 graphics, 16 gigs of RAM in each NUC, a 20 gigabyte SSD, Intel gigabit NIC, and then they've got a D-Link gigabit switch in there with VLAN set up. All 10 nodes are internally connected to that gigabit switch in aggregate. This microcluster effectively fields 40 cores, 160 gigabytes of RAM, 1.2 gigabytes of solid state storage, and is connected over internal gigabit network. A single fan quietly cools the power supply while all other nodes are passively cooled by aluminum heat sinks spanning the side of the chassis. Uh, and then the first node, which is called Node Zero in the box, also has an Intel Centrino Advanced N6235 Wi-Fi adapter, a 2-terabyte spinning hard drive, USB and HDMI ports are wired and accessible from the rear of the box, and access to the USB and HDMI of nodes 1 through 9 are accessible under the unit. It also has 6-gigabit LAN ports, all connected to that internal switch that the NUCs are all connected to, which is hooked up right there at the rear of the panel. Doesn't um, that just sound amazing? Yeah, it really... Sounds like a lot of fun. Like, I've, you know, I've had some fun with the NUC recently, and I can tell you it's a serious machine. You know, it's... It yeah, has so its... ten of them must be ten times the amount <laughs> of fun, surely. <laughs> All right, so roundtable, mumble room, uh, anybody in here, what do you guys think? Could you see a use for an orange box like this? Could it be like, uh, think about this, maybe like a portable data center? I think this is pretty exciting. Anybody think this is bogus? Anybody not excited by this? Actually, I can think of several applications for something like this. For instance, uh, you know, for doctor's office record keeping, mm-hmm. offsite, you know, that kind of thing. It definitely has a has a use. And I could see like too, like you could do everything working together in like one big cluster, or you could have one machine's the web server, one machine's the database server, one machine's the file server, right? You could. I- One's the Quasal server. One's the Quasal server, exactly. <laughs> I think this is a pretty compelling idea, uh, and I, uh, I, I think it's interesting to kind of uh, demonstrate, maybe in a way, uh, how you could have ext- extremely high power, high, you know, high powered servers in a very small little container like this. Uh, I, you think about it, like the price isn't that crazy. So it starts at uh, what seventy five hundred euros, and then depending on how you configure it, the price is going to go up in there. But I mean. You can get a Mac Pro for that price, right? And this is 10 machines in one box. <laughs> yeah, Mark, Mark, Mark Shuttleworth unveiled it at the OpenStack conference in his keynote today. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's um, it certainly had a lot of attention as a result. Yeah, so there is an OpenStack thing going on right now. So I guess this was sort of the big uh, – this was the big show for uh, Canonical, wasn't it? 
Uh, one of them, yeah. <laughs> oh, is there something else going on there? Yeah, the, so Mark has uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of the times he does um, a big tech demo um, uh, or announces some new product, and I think he gave two things away. One was the the orange box, and another was the fact that there's a the most powerful machine on the planet, the most powerful computer on the planet in China, happens to run Ubuntu on OpenStack, which. Right. Is quite cool, really. That is quite cool. Although I think we covered that in the Linux Action Show, so Mark should watch last. That's that's all I'm saying. All right, hold on. I think I have the <laughs> keynote that you linked us earlier. Let's see if it'll see if it'll play. I don't know if I have the audio from it or not because I had a, I had to hook this machine up during the show. But uh, it was pretty funny because Mark was on stage revealing this orange box, and he had it under like a big curtain, like a big like uh, sheet. So there's this big like black sheet on stage with Mark Shuttleworth and he's walking around it. He's not really drawing a lot of attention to it. And then at one point when he introduces the orange box, when he starts talking about it, he pulls off the sheet and then it's like, huzzah, here it is. It was, it was a pretty good moment. <laughs> he so loves the big reveal. We'll have the uh, keynote linked in the show notes. And Popey was nice enough to give us right to the time index. So you can uh, watch that uh, big reveal since I didn't have it uh, set up for the show today. I apologize. Uh, yeah, but I think that's I think it's a pretty neat thing. I mean, the antivirus thing is a cool story too. But that's like I felt like the antivirus thing is we already kind of knew that that guy was yeah. just saying stuff we already knew. Look at that master a, HDMI. That's so cool. Here's a million dollar question though: Can it play Minecraft? I think it could. <laughs> I think it could. Although it oh, is man, not, think how many Minecraft servers you could have inside that one box. The problem is that know, right? the problem is that HD four thousand might be your limiting factor. I don't know. Uh, what well, is a server? You, know, you could have a cluster of Minecraft servers in that box. I'm thinking this is our new encoding rig, right? We just uh, there you go. Yeah, That's we, not where I was thinking. Yeah, we do a little uh, GNU parallel scripting and uh, go in there and get FFmpeg running across all ten NUCs, and then it spits out a file in two seconds. <laughs> yeah. It's the, oh man, I totally want one of those now. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I, and I also I find it compelling that it's just that single fan in the back too. So they have so if they've obviously like taken every NUC. Like, they're not even getting NUCs in the cases. They're like motherboard NUCs mounted oh, yeah, inside all, this they're thing. They're all out of the boxes, and they're all mounted on the the, the side. So there's a picture on the uh, Tranquil PC site of it upside down with the the, the bottom off so you yeah. can see inside. And, and all the NUCs are mounted along. There's five on each side, I think. And they're mounted so that the heat is dissipated through the outside of the case. I was trying to find that on their website, but I don't see it yet because I, I saw that on, like, one of the Ubuntu... Uh, announcement pages, but I don't see it on the on the Tranquil PC site. So when you saw this, does, does it look like they're actually buying full straight up NUCs from Intel and, and then pulling them out of the boxes, or does Intel sell them to OEMs just as the boards? Did you, did you get a sense? Uh, I don't know. I mean, Tranquil PC build them, so right, yeah, yeah. we we contracted them to build them, yeah. so, and they and they deal with all that kind of stuff. I don't know whether they have someone sat there with a screwdriver taking them out of the cases, or <laughs> whether they have a deal with Intel. Awesome. I I really do. I like the no, idea, Intel. though. I do like the idea that like just uh, like a whole bunch of guys are at Canonical and they get a big shipment of these things and they sit there and uh, they sit there and uh, just take them out of the box and they hook them up to this thing. I think that's. Uh, <laughs> Kind of I'll tell you what, Arthur, there's a whole pile of uh, empty knock boxes you could chuck <laughs> if you wanted to. Well, I'm actually, you know, I'm doing the, I'm showing this picture, this image from a knock right now. Uh, and it, it's, you know what, like uh, Rikai, uh, our uh, our production pipeline guy, calls it the uh, the glue for the studio. It's like when you need to hook two things up, you need a box in one place, like you just stick a knock there and it, it's the perfect glue because 
it, it's small, it's tiny, like in terms of um, like the space it takes up on the table is like actually beneficial, but also like the amount of power it draws uh, and uh, the sound it makes is all very minimal. HDMI out is very nice, so uh, they've actually they've been really good rigs, and I love the idea too of of kind of not just having multiple cores, but having multiple machines, and then having the ability to either have them all work together or independently. I think it's kind of a neat deal. Now, now I know what I want. Now I, you know, now I, now I want one, Matt. Oh boy! Oh boy! <laughs> now you see, uh, System Seventy Six should get on there and uh, and yeah. then, uh, give us a review unit. That'd be great. You know what, Tranquil PC? If you guys want to send us a review unit, I'm just saying, Linux actually. Okay with that? Yeah, we can take a look at that. That'd be fine. Sure, I wouldn't mind. All right. Well, uh, before we go, before we wrap up today's show, I'd like to make a special request that you guys get out there. Oh, go ahead, uh, Crash. If you had something you wanted to add, I just saw that you flagged me. Uh, oh, it's just um, I looked up the CPU that they have in those NUCs on the Intel Arc site. Yeah, are you about and to? And I noticed that what? I noticed that they're actually one of the um, like fully enabled Intel CPUs. They've oh. got all the virtual machine stuff and all the directed I/O and all that sort of thing as well. So, oh, like you, you think the... about for an office, like yes. a small office that needs to run a bunch of machines. You could stick one of those in there. They're not going to be ultra fast VMs. So but you specifically saw you the could run you twenty sp- virtual machines on it, right? You specifically saw it has VTXD support. Yeah, it's got everything. Like I'm just going to look on the site now. So the the VTXD support's nice because then that means you can give direct direct access to hardware to the to the virtual machine, which is really nice for like storage and stuff. Uh, so that's really cool. All right, well, there you go. We'll have links to all that stuff as well as the specs listed out. And if you're curious about that antivirus guy who switched to Linux, we also have that linked in the show notes. And uh, I, I do want to ask you, if you do me a solid, it help us make uh, this Sunday's Linux Action Show even better. If you go over to the show notes, I have a link to the perfect home server form you can fill out uh, at home and let us know what you would, and add your own descriptions and things like that and submit that. And I'll, go, I'll be going over that. We're going to do... On Sunday, now I am having uh, some free NAS problems right now. <laughs> uh, in fact, if anybody is familiar with how to, on a free NAS box, uh, just do a one-to-one swap out of a failed hard drive. I had my last non-Western Digital Red drive in my free NAS rig died yesterday or the day before. I got the overnight drive replacement. I put the drive in, and FreeNAS does not have any interface for just doing a swap of a drive. It still thinks my the drive that died is still attached to the pool, and so the pool's still all screwed up, and the machine's locking up. It's a FreeNAS catastrophe! So if anybody out there has any uh, any ideas or tips, I'd appreciate that. Or if there's anything else you want to comment or give us a topic to chew on, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and click that contact link, and then choose Linux Unplugged from the dropdown and send in your feedback to us. We'd love to start out the show with a little bit of that. You can also go over to our subreddit, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. And don't forget, you can also join us live over at jblive.tv. We do this show Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific. Uh, you can get that converted to your local time zone by going over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. All right, Matt. So uh, here's what you got to get thinking about, all right? Get thinking about what it would take to have Matt Hartley's perfect home server. Like, is it Plex on there? Boy. Right? Yeah, I'm, yeah I, I'm going to have to think about that. I, I have a couple ideas. Yeah, so we'll talk about that on Sunday. We'll get, we'll get the audience's uh, ideas. And on top of that, You'll see what we've come up with here at JB1 for the new setup. We got some pretty cool stuff we're doing, and it's kind of nuts how awesome this technology's gotten. So we'll cover the perfect Arch server on Sunday show. Our, our ideas plus the community's ideas. So go over to the show notes for Linux Unplugged 40. Find that Google Doc form and fill it out for us if you would. 
All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of Linux Unplugged. If we don't see you on Sunday for the big show, we'll see you right back here next Tuesday. Bye, everybody. <laughs>